0: right let's bow our heads and ask the lord's blessing on our time together father god we thank you again for another beautiful day today thank you for your creation and how it magnifies yourself glorifies you your omnipotence your your um creativity your uh the the beauty of everything that you do and your holiness Father, may the God of our salvation be exalted this morning as we open up your word, your love letter to us, the letter that reveals you to us. May we concentrate and focus on what you have to teach us this morning as we look at Judas and learn lessons of warning about what not to do and how not to be. And then as we listen to you tell us about loving one another as you have loved us we know that each of us could grow in this area. Help us, Lord, again to die to self and to put others ahead of ourselves and to learn how to be humble, servant-hearted. I know there is a lot to learn in this lesson. I pray that your servant would, would be able to cl- think clearly and that I would be able to speak clearly and quickly so that we could finish everything that, um, that you would want us to, to cover this morning. And again, we just pray that you and you alone would be magnified and lifted up in all that is said and all that is thought in our minds here this morning because we do want to make sure that Jesus alone receives all the glory for whatever is accomplished, and we know your word does not return void. Now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, John chapter 13, as you can see, I will allow you to look down (laughs) to see that the title of our message this morning is, And It Was Night, and that comes right from the passage of the scripture we'll be looking at. If you look at verse 30, it has the last four words, And It Was Night. So that's where I got the title. In this lesson, we're going to see the deliberate steps that Jesus took to expel Judas from his presence. He needed to get Judas out of there before he would institute the Lord's Supper, which would be for believers only. He needed to get Judas out of there before he would then give his farewell discourse, which was all about encouragement and how much he loved his men and his final words of instruction to his true followers. He also needed to get Judas out of there because the ball needed to start get rolling. He didn't say that right, but the, he needed to get things rolling, didn't he? Because there was only so much time before he needed to die at 3 that day, 3 in the afternoon. So this is all about getting rid of Judas. Of course, he does offer him one last chance to repent. We'll see that when he hands him the sop. But our outline for today consists of just three parts. We'll be looking at the giving of the Sop, the glory of the Son, S-O-N, and the goal of the saints. I hope I get to that. The goal of the saints is that we love one another as the Lord hath loved us. So let's begin by looking at the giving of the Sop. And for this, we're going to read John 13. 23 to 26 but i'm going to back up and just read start at 21 so we remember what was going on in the verses immediately preceding start at verse 21 when jesus had thus said he was troubled in spirit and testified and said verily verily i say unto you that one of you shall betray me then the disciples looked on one another doubting of whom he spake not knowing who he spoke about there as far as the betrayer is concerned now we're going to start today's passage in verse 23, now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Who was that? John, you all know that, John. And he was on the Lord's immediate right. That's how he could lean in on the Lord's bosom. Verse 24, who always pops up and, and does something? Peter, here we go. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him, to John, that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. Peter wants to know from John, who is the betrayer? He then lying on Jesus' breast, saith unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, he it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to who? Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. We'll stop right there. Peter, Peter. Every time I say that, I think of Peter, Peter Pumpkin Eater. <laughs> Peter just could not handle the suspense of not knowing who the betrayer was. It was just too much for him not to know. So he spoke up. I was looking ahead and thinking of all, well, of course, I could look back too because Peter just never, somebody said yesterday that he must have had ADD <laughs> because he just couldn't sit there. Uh, back you know we had just uh was it a couple of weeks ago when Peter in verse six said to the Lord when the Lord stooped down and was washing all the disciples feet Peter spoke up and said uh, uh, Lord you'll never wash my feet and then a few verses later he says um, not my feet only but my hands and my head now here of course we find out that he's trying to get information out of John about who the betrayer is and then look ahead I have the wrong Bible. Yesterday, I had it all marked. But look at verse thirty-six. Again, we see Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, whither thou whither goest thou? He has to ask a question about where the Lord is going. And then we see him. I think again, there's several places, but over in eighteen ten, it says then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, and what does he do? (laughs) Chops off the high priest servant's ear. Peter, Peter, he just can't sit still. Why do you think he wanted to know from John who the betrayer was? So he could protect, protect, (laughs) protect Jesus. And what do you think he would do if he found out who the betrayer was? He, yes, I think Peter, knowing Peter, he would have drawn out his sword and gone for the not maybe not the ear but he didn't he wasn't going for malchus's ear either he would have made short work out who of whoever the betrayer was that was just the nature of peter he loved the lord and he would have protected him to death Uh, all the way you know even to his own life why would peter how do we know i should ask how how do we know that peter had a knife on him i just read you a verse when he, they get into the garden of gethsemane we are going to find out that he drew out a sword and did hack off that high servant the high priest servant's ear malchus so we know he had a sword on his person remember who jesus had sent to prepare the passover two men peter and john and what did they have to do to prepare the passover they had to slit the throat of the Passover lamb. So we know Peter had a sword. It wasn't a long sword like we think of swords. It was actually a short, yeah, a short dagger sword that they used. Well, anyway, uh, Peter had to know. And when, and when Jesus was probably looking another direction, Peter beckoned across the table or from wherever Peter was seated. We know it wasn't on the right or the left, but somewhere there. He beckoned to John to find out who the betrayer was. So it was Peter who prompted the probing. And apparently he did so by way of sign language. Because he, did, he didn't verbalize anything. Now from where he was sitting, he probably motioned somehow to John, you know, find out who it is. It was some kind of sign language. John understood because remember, these two men, before they became disciples, had been fishing partners. John and Peter, along with their brothers James and Andrew. And what do you know about fishermen when they're out there trying to catch fish? Shh, don't talk. Fishermen, you learn to talk with sign language. So John immediately knew what Peter wanted. Um, and notice now in verse, where is it? Verse 23, how John referred to himself. Do you see that? He says, one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. John would refer to himself this way four times in his gospel. This is just the first of four times. You see, John was the youngest of the disciples, uh, and they say he was probably a teenager when he began to follow Jesus. So now some three years later, three and a half years later, they figure John is probably about 20 or 21 years old. And somehow young John just never could get over the fact that Jesus loved him. He would have loved that song, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know. It wasn't that he was saying that Jesus loved him any more than he loved the other disciples. It's just that he couldn't get over the fact that not only did he love Jesus, but Jesus first loved him and loved him immensely. What a contrast. I was thinking about the contrast we have between the two men sitting on either side of Jesus. We've got John on his right and Judas on his immediate left, don't we? We've got the sheep on the right and the goat on the left. And I thought, too, how perfect that picture was. What if it had been the other way? What if John was on the left and Judas was on the right? It would have messed up the picture because we know in the judgment of the sheep and the goats that we looked at last year in the Olivet Discourse, where do the sheep go? On the Lord's right and the goats are on his left. But think about the contrast. One, the sheep on the right, John, deeply, genuinely loved the Lord and he just could not lean in close enough to the Lord's heart. And I thought about this. Where did we always see Mary of Bethany? At the feet of Jesus. I believe Mary of Bethany was probably the best student that Jesus ever had. And, you know, she listened and she was very spiritually discerning and perceptive because she sat at his feet. But as far as the heart is concerned, who do we find closest to his heart? John, I think if Jesus, you know, he never had a physical son. has a lot of spiritual children, but he never had a physical child. Um, but if, you know, if he had one, John, I shouldn't say if he had one, John was the closest probably to being like a son to Jesus, close to his heart. Therefore, why do you think that when Jesus hung on the cross... One of the last things he do, did was to commend his mother, Mary, to John. Because out of all the people, Jesus knew who were the two closest to his heart. His mother, Mary, and John. So he's on the right. He's the sheep. Contrast him to the man sitting on his left, the goat. Judas was sitting there full of bitterness, frustration, anger, greed, exactly greed, and he was probably plotting a means that he could get himself from the upper room as soon as possible, you know, wondering how he could do that. How am I going to get out of here and run to the authorities and let them know where Jesus is right now? It's a private place. The public won't know. It's night. How can I get out of here so that I can betray him without suspicion? So what a contrast we have between the two. The disciples' perplexity over the identity of the betrayer is significant because it tells us that Jesus had never shown any different uh, temperament or treatment toward Judas, doesn't it? In the fact that they had no idea who the betrayer was, it tells us that he had not even shown the slightest attitude of resentment or bitterness toward Judas. And I can say that really dogmatically with a lot of confidence because of two reasons. Number one, if Jesus had acted in any way whatsoever differently toward Judas than the rest of them, they would have known or they would have at least suspected that it could have been Judas when they heard his announcement about a betrayer being one of them. Secondly, I can say that dogmatically because the Lord lived a sinless life. And if he ever had... Is that that's a phone oh, okay firehouse yeah we've heard that here before yeah it's right over there i was i thought that somebody had a unique phone ring <laughs> that would give you heart attack every time your phone rang <laughs> second reason i can say that he didn't show anything different toward judas is because if he had if he had shown any bitterness or any kind of attitude that would have been a sin And Jesus was sinless. So we know that he treated Judas with as much concern and love and and respect and maybe even more than he did the other men because he was so much after Judas to get him saved. All right. The younger man, John, obviously respected the older man, Peter. Who was so obviously, you know, the the leader of the group, the spokesman for the group, and when he knew what Peter wanted him to do, he leaned in upon the Lord's breast. And uh, remember, I told you how they were seated at the table. Don't think of Leo Leonardo da Vinci's picture of the. What did I say? Who knows what I said. Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper, because it wasn't like that at all, all right? They would actually recline with their feet going out from them, from the table. Try this at your house today, Sylvia, everybody reclining. (laughs) And they would lean on their, their right hands and eat with their, I mean, their left hand and eat with their right hand. So if John is here, you see, he's already leaning in toward the Lord's breast anyway. So all he'd have to do is lean a little closer and look up at the Lord and ask him, Lord, who is it? And uh, he could do that very quietly, and no one else would have heard it. Could have whispered, just like we had that private conversation last week between Judas and the Lord, when Judas asked the Lord, "Master, is it I?" And He said, "Thou hast said." Nobody else heard that conversation. Um, <clears throat> let's see. So he, he, uh, he went ahead and asked the Lord that question, and then Jesus readily responded with an answer. You see, when you get close to the heart of the Lord, you find out a lot more information, don't you? Jesus answered, and he said, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And then immediately, right after he said that, the Lord took a, probably a piece of unleavened bread, and he dipped it in that corrosive paste mixture that they would have during this uh, this Passover. And who did he give it to? Judas. He gave it to Judas. So the Lord's answer to Peter's question through John was actually, we could say, a final appeal of love and grace extended to Judas. It was a mark of special honor for the host at the Passover table to dip a morsel into the corrosive paste and give it first to the guest of honor, who usually during the Passover was seated at the Lord's left hand. So this was, this was something that they, they would do. In our culture, we could say it was the equivalent of someone lifting a glass in acknowledgement, you know, giving a toast in acknowledgement of a person of honor there at the, uh, the dinner. And it was likely this gesture that not only confirmed to John who the betrayer was, you know, he said, the one I dip the sop in and give it to is the betrayer. So that confirmed to John who it was, but it probably at the same time also confused John, because this was an act of affection. And it was so ingrained in that culture that it would actually work to turn suspicion away from Judas. Because Jesus, in doing that, giving him the sop, Jesus seemed to be saying, uh, Judas is, means something special to me. I'm honoring him. I'm like proposing a toast to him. So it turned suspicion away from Judas. Jesus seems to be saying he's special. He's really giving... Here's what we see. The grace of God, the grace of Jesus. He's really giving Judas another attempt to repent. While he is at the very same time answering John's question. But doing it in such a paradoxical way that he's also protecting Judas. See, it's very wise. It's confusing. You have to understand the culture of that day to get the whole picture. But he's really answering John. While at the same time, he's turning suspicion of everybody else away from Judas. He's protecting Judas, and he's also giving Judas one more opportunity to repent. It was very wise, a very wise gesture to do. And after everything that Jesus the Good Shepherd did for Judas that evening, he was doing everything a Good Shepherd should do. He had just finished washing Judas, right? He washed his feet right along with all the other disciples. Now he was feeding Judas, and he was also protecting Judas from all the others, you know, ganging on him and killing him, doing everything a good shepherd should do, washing, feeding, and protecting. You would think that after all of that, that Judas's heart would literally break in two, that he would fall on his face and repent and ask the Lord's forgiveness. But instead, what did Judas do? He accepted the sop with no tears, no words at all of repentance. He didn't even, I got to thinking about, he could have just rep, rep, politely refused the sop and said something like, Master, you know my heart. Why don't you just give this up to someone more worthy? He could have said something like that, couldn't he? But he didn't. He, he just he just took it. His mind was set on doing what his heart had already thought to do. So this is this in, this is an action of someone whose heart is truly hardened. He accepted honor from the very one. He would betray. And he did it just to keep up his hypocritical show in front of all the rest of them, didn't he? He's, you know, he's a smooth deceiver right to the very end. We know this because when he comes with the Romans and with the temple guard into the Garden of Gethsemane later that night, how does he greet the Lord? He says, Hail, Master, and then he kisses them. The kiss of betrayal. So he was smooth, he was crafty, and he was hypocritical right to the very end. Nothing Jesus could do would soften his already hardened heart or break his spirit of rebellion. Well, John learned the truth of the matter about, you know, he learned the truth about Judas at this time. But he may have somehow thought that he misunderstood the Lord. And the Lord answered his question, but maybe John thought, well, maybe I didn't understand. Because, well, Judas would get the sop first anyway. Because that was the custom of Passover, to give the sop to the one on your immediate left. And if he did clearly understand what Jesus had told him, and if he now did know for sure that Judas was the betrayer, it's obvious from verses 27 to 30 that he didn't tell Peter or the others at that time we know that peter doesn't know at this time or peter would have jumped right up so john didn't tell peter and as soon as judas accepted the sop <clears throat> we know he almost immediately departs from the room and as soon as he accepted the sop you know his his destiny was sealed that was it because in refusing the lord's final offer of grace He allowed Satan full sway in his life and the devil moved in to possess him. And then Jesus needed to expel him immediately from from their presence. So if John did know with clarity that Judas was the betrayer, he didn't have a whole lot of time to process that information and to share it with Peter. Because it all happened so fast. You know, Jesus dipped the sop, gave it to Judas. What you do, do quickly, and out he went. So John didn't have a whole lot of time to communicate back to Peter or to process that. And because he was likely the youngest disciple, he may have just thought to himself that he didn't really understand all that was going on. I mean, after all, the Lord was pretty complex. (laughs) Maybe he didn't quite get it all. And should keep quiet and not start an uproar. After all, they had just been reprimanded for their fighting. Maybe it wouldn't be a good idea now to have everybody get their swords out and start fighting. <laughs> so so, yes mm-hmm yeah, we're gonna yeah, because that was. Oh, you missed that lesson. That's when you weren't here. We talked about the two stages of possession. Yeah, yeah. That was a couple weeks ago, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. We'll have to get you that tape. I did explain that, but that's a good... We're going to talk about that next. But um, where was I? Oh, yeah, and the other thing he might have been thinking was, well, Jesus is very calm about all this. You know, he's cool, calm, and collected, so John might have thought... I probably should just stay cool, calm, and collected myself. So he didn't, if he did know, I'm sure he was perplexed and confused. So I'm just trying to give you a little bit of the thought, you know, what might have been going on in John's mind here after all of this. So let's look next at Judas expelled. Um, And this is verses 27 to 30, which start out, as Catherine said, very, very awful. How would you like these words ever said about you? Oh, terrible. Verse 27, and after the sop, Satan entered into him. Of course, you don't ever have to worry about that being said of you if you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. Because the Holy Spirit would never allow Satan in, only can be possessed by one or the other. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, that thou doest do quickly. Now no man at the table knew... For what intent he spake this unto him? No man there includes John, right? No man knew why Jesus said that to Judas. Verse 29, for some of them thought because Judas had the bag that Jesus had said unto him, buy those things that we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. He then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. What a lesson of warning Judas Iscariot should teach mankind if mankind was only willing to listen and to learn from the mistake of Judas. If sin is not stopped in its seed and thought stage, what will happen? It will only grow and get worse. What had begun as just a small seed of frustration and discontent that things weren't going his way, the way Judas thought things should go, that little seed of discontent had grown to the point that Judas was now so confirmed in his willful rebellion and in his apostasy that he literally became possessed by Satan himself. He had been possessed, first of all, where does all evil begin? In the heart. First of all, he had been possessed by an evil intention, which turned into an evil action. It went from his heart to his, we could say hands, but in his case, it went from his heart to his feet, because his feet took him straight to the chief priest where he betrayed the Lord and sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. So he had been possessed by an evil intention, which turned to an evil action, and now where does he find himself? possessed by the evil one himself how horrible he had flirted with the devil is it ever wise to flirt with the devil no it's not wise to flirt with the devil you know they're trying to legalize marijuana can you believe all the stuff that is going on now legalize marijuana i never thought i'd see the day Oh, and, and this, I was watching the news last night. This little girl named Miley Cyrus or something, is she 17 years old? What was, was she also Hannah Montana or something? She used to be so sweet and so innocent, and now she's making these pornographic music videos. That are, oh, you don't flirt with the devil. He flirted. Judas flirted with the devil, and now he would reap the disastrously bitter fruit of that flirtation. One commentator said that before the sop, Judas was an apostle. After the sop, he was an apostate. No more chances. He sealed his doom. Immediately, we find that the Lord's attitude toward Judas changed. He could see what, what the rest of the men couldn't see. He, can see. he could see what you and I can't see, and I'm glad we can't see the spiritual world Have you ever read any of Frank Peretti's books (laughs) about the spiritual world and, you know, the spirits in the world that we can't see? But Jesus could see the spirit world just as easily as he could see the flesh and blood world. And he could see that Satan had been in the upper room ever since Judas entered and had been hovering over Judas, whispering, you know, into his ear. And that now he could see in the eyes of Judas the devil himself leering out at him. And so it was necessary to expel, to exercise, we could say, Judas from the fellowship before Satan could do anything to disrupt Christ's last precious moments with his men. Uh, uh, Satan had been in the room when they were fighting. He was probably behind that fighting and that arguing about who's the greatest. And don't you know that once he entered into Judas, he would have loved to have used Judas to really disrupt the fellowship in there? He could have spoken through Judas and convinced some of the men that Jesus really wasn't who he claimed to be. It was important to get him out of there also before he could do anything to corrupt the institution of the Lord's Supper. It was also time to set Judas loose, Satan possessed Judas, so that he could begin to set in motion all the final events that would lead to the cross. Think about that. Jesus said, what you do, do quickly. You need to go, you know. He didn't even need to look at a watch. Did. By the way, I got a watch. Did, did I have that last week? Um, but J- Jesus knew he was on a divine time schedule. He had this built-in divine clock in his mind. He knows now it's time. I got to get Judas out. He knew, Jesus knew how long it would take Judas to walk to where the chief priests were that night. How long it would take the chief priests to gather gather together the temple guard and get a Roman escort. How long it would then take them to get to the upper room. And then see, uh uh-oh, he's not here, he's gone. And Judas would say, I bet I know where he went. He always would go to the Garden of Gethsemane. I bet he's there, follow me. So they go to the garden. Jesus knows how long that will take. He knows how long his arrest will take. He knows how long each of his six trials would take. He knew how long it would take for, you know, Pilate to wishy-washy Pilate to finally condemn him. And then they take him down the Via Della Rosa to the cross, how long it would take for him to accomplish all the messianic prophecies that he needed to accomplish on the cross and talk to the the thief that would get saved i mean just think of all this so that he would then die at exactly 3 p.m. when they were slaughtering the passover lambs Isn't that amazing who is jesus christ ladies god don't ever let anybody convince you otherwise he was a master in control he had this all orchestrated from eternity past so he says it's time to go He says, that thou doest, do quickly. And I want you to take notice of this fact or you might miss it. Even though Satan now possessed Judas, right? Who is giving the commands? Jesus. That thou doest, do quickly. Satan may have thought to use Judas to bring some havoc to the upper room, as I just mentioned. You know, before he departed. But what did he have to do? Satan had to obey Jesus. When Jesus said get out of here and get out of here quickly, Satan had to obey. Who's the creator and who's the cre- creature? Don't believe the Mormons. They will tell you that and a lot of Mormons don't even know this, but it's in their teaching, in their doctrine. They say that Lucifer and Christ are brothers. Oh no, they're not. Jesus is the creator God. Lucifer is one of his creation. He has to obey his creator. So he had to leave right then and there. Also, by way of those few words that thou doest do quickly, Jesus was really formally announcing his surrender to his father's will. In effect, he was saying, I am ready to do my father's bidding. I'm ready to be led as a lamb to the slaughter. Go ahead, Judas. I'm not going to block your way. Could he have blocked Judas's way? Absolutely, He could have paralyzed him. He could have just, you know, with a word of his mouth, he could have zapped him. Zapped him right out of there. But he needed Judas because Judas was going to be an instrument in getting the whole thing going. And Jesus had to go to the cross. He had to be betrayed. He had to be crucified. That doesn't mean that Judas wasn't responsible for his own choice in all of this. But he says, basically says to him, do what you have been hoping for an opportunity to do. Get the ball rolling. I have no intention of standing in your way, Judas, or Satan. It's for this very purpose that I came into the world. It's interesting to realize at this point that that Jesus and Satan, Jesus and Satan, were both leading Judas in the same direction. Satan told Judas, betray him. Betray him. And you know what Jesus said to Judas? Judas. Do it quickly. Do it quickly. Judas was determined to betray Jesus. Satan was determined to destroy Jesus. And Jesus himself was determined to die for the sins of mankind. Again, what's this an example of the Genesis 50-20 principle? God is using Satan's evil and man's evil to work out his own ultimate good for mankind and for his greatest glory which was on the cross. Christ receive his greatest glory. We're going to talk about that next. Well, the other 11 apostles obviously heard Jesus' words to Judas, that thou doest do quickly. They heard that. They hadn't heard those little private conversations, but this they did hear, and they saw Judas get up and depart. But we're told in verse 28 that no man there at the table knew why Jesus had said that to him. No man does include John. John didn't know why Jesus said that to him. Then verse 29 tells us that they figured because Judas had the bag, which means he was the treasurer for the group, He was, we already know that, he was the money keeper, that perhaps Jesus was sending him out to buy some further supplies for the feast. Now remember the feast went on for eight days. so. They probably thought this kind of crazy. Why would he send him out in the middle of our meal? But maybe that's what he did. He's got the money. Maybe he's going to go out and get some more supplies. Or what was the other thing they thought maybe Jesus was telling Judas to do? Go out and give some money to the poor. Now, you know what that tells us? That tells us two things. Number one, it tells us that Jesus never used his own miraculous powers to feed himself and his men. Because he could have, whatever they might have needed for the feast, he could have just multiplied what they did have couldn't he? As he, when he fed the 5,000 and the 4,000, he didn't use his powers for himself and his men. Uh, Secondly, it tells us that even though Jesus himself was dirt poor, yet he did give to the poor, didn't he? It must have been a common practice because they thought, well, maybe he sent him out to go give some money to the poor. Even if, now we're going to go back to John, even if John, even if John had understood the Lord's handing of the sop to Judas, to mean that Judas was, yes, the betrayer. John would not have known that Judas's act of treachery would happen so soon. You know, they didn't know the time schedule. Even though Jesus had said in two days I'll be crucified, etc., they didn't get it. And he would never have... He probably thought, well, I'm not quite understanding this, but, you know, after this supper is over... I'll go to Peter and I'll discuss what happened with Peter and, and we'll, we'll see if we can figure out that it is, if it is Judas. So he wasn't expecting Judas to go get out of the room and go immediately to betray the Lord. So you see what I'm saying? Um, and, he, and so therefore, it says he didn't understand either. He thought, well, maybe he's sending him out to buy supplies or to give to the poor as well. He was thinking right along with the other ones. And remember, these men didn't yet have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. And so they didn't have the discernment that they would have after the day of Pentecost. So right now, they're they're still kind of confused. In the Apostle John's description of Judas's departure from the upper room, we see he was inspired by God the Holy Spirit to include an interesting detail. And this is where I got the title for this message. He wrote, and it was night. Let me read verse 30. He then, having received the sop, which is Judas, went immediately out, and it was night. I circled those words. And it was night. Those words obviously contain some spiritual significance because everyone knew that the Passover meal was eaten in the evening after the appearance of the first first three stars in the sky. So this was not necessary information to include in his gospel account. Everyone knew it would be evening. So why did he include it? Well, we have the advantage of having all of John's writings in the New Testament. Not only the Gospel of John, but his three epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And what other book did John write? The book of Revelation. And we know that often he was inspired by God the Holy Spirit to include references to light and darkness. And uh, these are found... Throughout his writing, so we can appreciate the significance of him saying, and it was night. I want to read some of, this is just amazing when you think of this. Some of the words Jesus had said about light and darkness while Judas was around. You know, Judas was his apostle, his disciple for some three years. And he probably heard every single one of these things Jesus said. So just picture yourself as jesus speaking these words and probably looking at judas as you're speaking them some of them some of them he spoke to nicodemus but i'm sure judas heard most of these words john three nineteen, and this is the condemnation that light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil For every, this is John 3.20, for everyone that doeth evil hateth the light. Why is so much evil done in darkness? Dark bars and in the darkness of night. Because they don't want their evil deeds seen. They don't want them reproved. They don't want them uncovered. He says, for everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved or uncovered. And then he said this, and I know Judas was there for this one, John eight twelve. I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. John nine five he said, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. John eleven nine. Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. John eleven ten. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth because there is no light in him. John twelve thirty five. Yet a little while is the light with you. You can see him looking at Judas. Walk while ye have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. John twelve thirty six. While ye have light, believe in the light, that ye may be the children of light. Amazing that Judas could hear all that And continued to walk in darkness. There he was in the presence of the light of the world, and he continued to harden his heart and walk in spiritual darkness. And now his opportunity for spiritual daylight, so to speak, was over. You know, it's always, always darkness when a person goes out from the presence of the Lord. And that's exactly what he did. When he shut that door of the upper room behind him, he was out from the presence of the Lord. And through John, the Holy Spirit was saying that it was more than just physical night for Judas, wasn't it? It was eternal spiritual night. You know, he was like Cain. Remember Cain who killed his brother Abel? Just like Cain, Judas went out from the presence of the Lord and he would never again, think of this, he would never again experience one moment of light except for that moment when he will stand before the blazing light of the great white throne judgment when Jesus, the light of the world, will sit on the great white throne and say, depart from me, Judas. I never knew you. That will be the one blazing light he'll ever see in all of eternity in utter darkness forever. And he would never again know even one moment of happiness in this life or the next. Because shortly after this, what does Judas do? He hangs himself. So truly for Judas and for anyone who follows Judas and goes his own way out of the presence of the Lord, truly it is night. Well, the atmosphere of the upper room changed immediately the minute that door closed behind Judas. For one thing, um, Jesus now was alone for the first time in years with his true men, wasn't he? just his true followers, the evil one who had been influencing the spiritual temperature in that room since they had first gathered, he too was gone, having taken his human dupe with him. And now Jesus could begin his upper room discourse. And. It's for the benefit of true believers and it's very interesting that he begins it on the note of his own glory let's look now at the glory of the son and for this we want to look very quickly oh my i'm running out of time verses 31 to 33 31 to 33. therefore when he was gone out jesus said now is the son of man glorified and god is glorified in him in who the son of man if god be glorified in him god shall also glorify him in himself And shall straightway glorify him. Then he says little children. Yet a little while I am with you. Ye shall seek me. And as as I said unto the Jews. Whither I go ye cannot come. So now I say to you. And then he goes on. That will be our next (laughs) outline part. A new commandment that they love one another. The departure of Judas marked a turning point in the Lord's life. It marked the beginning of his last the last lap of his journey to the cross and to everything that would follow the cross. Really, we could say that the departure of Judas from the upper room was the event that heralded the departure of Jesus back to the upper heaven, the upper room of the upper heaven, the upper throne room. Did you get that? The departure of Judas from the upper room is the event that triggered the Lord's departure back to the upper room of heaven in verse 31 we have the first recorded words of jesus after the removal of judas and they are now now is the son of man glorified and god is glorified in him. he knew that now that the ball was beginning to roll the clock was really ticking off the last hour now was the time that he was going to be glorified for 33 years His pre-incarnate glory, the glory he had shared with God the Father in all of eternity past, had been veiled behind human flesh. But he knew that by Sunday he would again, you know, have the divine glory once more. It would be unveiled, right, in his resurrected glorified body. But what was between Thursday and Sunday? The cross. The cross. So when he says... Really uppermost in his mind when he says now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. He's not really speaking there directly about his glory that he'll have in heaven. He's speaking about the glory he's going to have on the cross, which is amazing. Because from the unsaved man's perspective, the cross of Calvary looks like a place of disgrace and and horrible shame and total failure doesn't it the cross looks like just foolishness to the and uns- foolishness failure however from the divine perspective the cross was the revelation of the glory of god you see jesus knew that in a few hours he was going to ex- experience the greatest humiliation and indignity that is possible in this universe. The creator himself was going to be crucified on an old shameful cross by his creation. That's the greatest humiliation and indignity that this universe has ever seen. And yet knowing that, yet he still could say, now is the son of man glorified. It's it's worth us noting that he didn't say, didn't speak of the cross as his punishment, did he? Didn't speak of his death as a punishment or as a disgrace or as a failure, but he spoke of it as the most glorious event to take place, glorifying to both himself and to his heavenly father. You know, all of the paintings, Leonardo da Vinci and others, all the paintings, all the sculptures, all the movies that have ever been made about the cross, The crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ can never even begin to portray to us one one hundredth, one one thousandth, one one millionth of what transpired there on that cross. They can never ever express to us, no matter how hard they try, the length, the depth, the breadth, the height of the work transacted there. Just think of what happened on the cross. God's law was honored. His justice was upheld. Man's sins were born by one who willingly became sin, literally became sin. That goes beyond what I can comprehend. And he became the curse of sin for us. God turned his back on God. Salvation's price was paid in full and made available freely to all in faith. Satan's head was crushed right there on the cross death was defeated sin was defeated um the Lord reversed what the first man had done the first Adam all of that and so much more I could say it's just the unfathomable the significance of what transpired on the cross and that's why the Apostle Paul just cried out you know God forbid that I should glory in anything save what save the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. The cross was also the brightest, clearest manifestation of the glory of God the Father, which is what Jesus is also talking about when he said God himself is glorified in him, in Christ. <clears throat> you see, God's glory is all wrapped up in his attributes, in his person, in his character. If we were to have a little praise and worship session, of course we're worshiping the Lord when we look at his word. But if we're just to have a praise where we magnify the Lord, what would you say? We would say, "Lord, we glorify you, we praise you for Huh? For your faithfulness. Give me some words. For your love. All right, let somebody else besides you. Mercy. <laughs> for your salvation. What, his character, your omnipotence, your omniscience, your wisdom, your uh, mercy, grace, love, kindness, long-suffering. How about that one? <laughs> he is very patient with us. All these things are how we glorify God. If we, I mean, you know, if God just sat up there on his throne and he never revealed himself to us through his creation, we also glorify him when we look at creation, don't we? The heavens declare the glory of God. Um but there's only so much that we would be able to glorify God uh, about if, if, um, if he hadn't revealed more of his attributes to us through sin and salvation. Let me back up a minute. Remember when Isaiah saw the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6, high and lifted up, and the angels were before him bowing down, what were they saying? Holy, holy, holy holy lord god almighty they were magnifying glorifying god for his holiness you see the angels understood about the holiness of god didn't they don't they they do because when one of them lucifer rebelled against god and then a third of the angels fell with him joined him in his rebellion god's holiness would not allow them to stay there with him so they were expelled So they're saying, holy, holy, holy. They understood about the holiness of God. But the angels weren't bowing down and saying, merciful, 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 were they? Because God hadn't shown a whole lot of mercy to those angels. Out they were. You know, one rebellion and they were gone. So how did God display his other attributes? Why did God allow evil into the Garden of Eden? He allowed Satan into the Garden because he was all about showing his creation the angelic world and mankind his other attributes you see it's only because he has been merciful to us in giving us his son that we can now praise him for his mercy and the angels watch everything that's going on they're witnesses aren't they and now they're saying lord merciful 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 because they saw that he offered his son they can honor they can worship him for his grace and for his love that he God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. There's many characteristics of God that angels and man can now glorify him for because of what he did through his son on the cross. And Jesus himself was glorified there on the cross. I don't have time. This is really deep theology. I don't have time to get into all of the characteristics that were exceedingly magnified on the cross, but let's just look at a few of them, okay? Number one, and these aren't in order, but... His justice was displayed on the cross, wasn't it? Since God graciously determined to redeem d- redeem sinners, someone had to die for their sins, right? The wages of death is sin. I mean, the wages of sin is death. <laughs> uh, the the penalty of the broken law had to be enforced or God's justice would be compromised. You know, an unjust judge, and don't we have too many of them nowadays in our world? Sometimes they let the criminal go and they penalize the victim. But an unjust judge does not, I mean, a just judge does not let the criminal go without paying a penalty. If God was not just, what would that mean? That he was unjust. And if God was not just and he was unjust what would that make him well he surely wouldn't be holy if he was unjust but because he is holy he is also just so even though it meant the slaying of his own beloved son God refused to overlook justice somebody had to pay the price for broken law but this is where justice and mercy kissed right Because he was merciful to us, he didn't let justice go because he himself died on the cross for us. But anyway, when Christ hung on the cross, he glorified his father by displaying his justice in the greatest possible way. Another attribute Terry mentioned was God's faithfulness. That was displayed on the cross. God had promised man from the very beginning. There we go all the way back to Genesis 3.15, right? After Adam had first fallen, he promised him that he would send a savior, the seed of the woman. When Christ was offered on the cross as the substitutionary sacrifice for our sins, God was showing heaven and earth that he kept his word, wasn't he? All the angels said, oh, God is faithful. So then they could bow down and say, faithful, 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 as well as just, 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 and holy, holy, holy. And we too can see that God is faithful. So his glory of faithfulness, I mean, his glory was again displayed through his attribute of faithfulness. And the power of God was exceedingly displayed on the cross. God's power overcame all the combined efforts that this world and Satan and the lusts and pride of sinful flesh could throw at him. You know, all these forces, the world, the flesh, and the devil, sought for the death and permanent end of Jesus Christ. But they, combined, failed to take his life from him. Do you know that? They didn't take Jesus' life from him. He laid down his own life when he knew that every messianic prophecy about his redemption, his sacrifice on the cross, was fulfilled. And all the prophetic types... All the pictures, like when Abraham went up and was going to offer Isaac, when he knew all the prophecies and all the types were fulfilled, then he said, it is finished, and he gave up the ghost. Willingly, he gave up his own life. He determined the moment he would die himself. Nobody took his life from him. And so, again, we have um, his power displayed And God is glorified in the cross. You know, it says in 1 Corinthians one twenty-five, the weakness of God is stronger than man. When when God looked his weakest was when they arrested him and they took him off and they put him through all those unjust trials and then they nailed him to that cross. Didn't God look weak? But the weakness of God was stronger than all mankind put together and Satan and all his forces put together. Another very critical attitude of, uh, attribute of God displayed on the cross was his holiness. Habakkuk 1.13 tells us that God cannot look upon iniquity. And therefore, when Jesus willingly became sin for us, what did God have to do? He had to turn away from his son in the midst of his suffering and death. I think that was the most agonizing part of the cross for Jesus not so much the physical agony or the emotional agony the social jag- agony of his own scattering from him it was the fact that for the first time in eternity his father turned his back on him and they, their fellowship was broken and this is of course when Jesus cried out what my God my God why hast thou forsaken me Eloy Eloi, lama sabachthani, that's in Aramaic. He was there. You know why Jesus said that? Why did he say that? You know, men, the world will look at that and say, see, he didn't know. He was just a man. There he is, and it's just so disappointing. He thought that God would intervene for him, and he didn't. So it was a failure. But why did Jesus say those words? not only was it fulfillment of messianic prophecy because those words had been predicted back in psalm 22 1 the exact words but also jesus said those words for our benefit if he had not said that we would never know about the holiness of god that god had turned his back on his son how do we know god turned his back on his son because he said, why have you forsaken me? He said that. He said, why have you forsaken me? So that's the only reason we know that God did, because of his holiness, had to turn from his son who had become sin and a curse. But you know, we are given the answer to that question by Jesus himself. Where? Back in Psalm 22.1. Let me just read it to you. You don't have to go there, but I would like you to later psalm 22 begins like this my god my god why hast thou forsaken me why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring of course he was roaring there on the cross inside here's the answer in verse 3 but thou art holy we're given the answer to the lord's question why did god forsake his son because he's holy and there again god was glorified in his son for his attribute of holiness Now. Of course, we know another attribute that was magnified on the cross was God's love, right? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And I could go on and on with every single one of God's attributes. It was glorified in his son on the cross and therefore God was glorified. And. Of course, we can be sure, we're having trouble understanding this, but we can be sure that the disciples didn't get all this at this time <laughs> when they heard the Lord say that. And they surely would not understand his words later as they heard about his humiliation in hanging six hours naked between two thieves. They would say, where in the world is the even the appearance of glory in that? And yet, we know that the Lord's words... Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Are true, aren't they? His words did become true, and the disciples learned that on Sunday with the resurrection. Well, one more thing, and we'll close. When he says little children, you know that's the very first time he uses that little term of endearment. He says little children, um, yet a little while I am with you. Why couldn't he ever have used that little term before? not all of them had been his little children. This actually refutes universalism. You know, there, there are people who say that Jesus died for everyone and everyone is therefore saved. And uh, But this proves otherwise because he didn't call them his children. They weren't the sons of God until the one unbeliever was gone from their midst. Then for the first time, he says, little children. And he's looking right in the faces of Peter, John, James, Matthew, Philip, Andrew, Thomas, Nathaniel, Thaddeus, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, his precious little children. And his heart goes out to them when he then tells them, yet a little while... I am with you. You'll seek for me. And as I said to the Jews, and when they heard that, their hearts were pricked. He's going to say to us what he said to the religious rulers, his enemies. As I said to the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come. So now I say to you. I'm sure he felt compassion for them because he knows those words are hurting them. I'm only going to be with you a little while. What he's really telling them there is perk up your ears. What I'm going to say next to you is very important. Everything I'm going to say is important. I'm not going to be with you very long, so I want you to really pay attention. But when he says what I said to the Jews, I'm saying to you, but we want to notice two differences. When he spoke to the Jews, and this is in uh, John 7, 34 and in John 8, 21, He said to them, you'll seek me, but you won't find me. He doesn't say that to his disciples because we do know that they will find him, won't they? Actually, technically, he finds them. After he's resurrected, he finds them. Another thing he said differently is when he was talking to the Jews, he said, I go my way and ye shall seek me and shall die in your sins where i go you cannot come does he say to his apostles you will die in your sins no so he changes it we also know in our lesson two weeks from today look down at verse 33 he says "Whither i go thou canst not follow me now they will be following him eventually won't they he didn't say that to the jews either He says, you can't follow me now because you have a work to do and to complete, but one day you will follow me. Not to the cross, because that was something he had to tread alone. He had to do that alone, but they would follow him where? Where our beloved Dottie Barber has followed him into the presence of heaven. Well, I didn't get to the new commandment, which is to love one another, but it's all written out for you in your notes, and I hope that you will read that because that is... The mark, that is the badge of Christianity today. You know, the, the Pharisees were marked by their phylacteries on their heads. The uh, disciples of John were noted for their baptism. The pagans were marked and noted for their idols. But how are Christians, Christ followers, to be identified by the world out there? By our love one for another. We need to work on that, don't we? Actually, the true church, I think, does have that kind of love. What What confuses the world is Christendom. Because there's a lot of things that name the name of Christ that really aren't the true church. And cults and false doctrines have slept in... Uh, crept in under the umbrella of christendom so the world looks at us and says not see how they love one another but see how divisive and how they bite and, and bicker with one another but i believe the true church we have here a representation of the true church true born again believers and i hope and pray that we love one another and the world can see that that is our badge of true discipleship all right let's pray Father, we know that it would not be possible at all to love our brothers and sisters in Christ without the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit who sheds abroad the love of God in our hearts. So I pray with all my heart, Lord, that every single woman here today is truly born from above by the Spirit of the living God because she has genuinely put her faith and trust In Jesus Christ, who died for her sins. And Father, may we all consider afresh your commandment to love one another with that same selfless, sacrificial, understanding, and indiscriminate love that Christ has for us. I trust that we each seriously want to be your disciples. That's why we're here. So may we daily ask you for your grace and your strength to put others first in true humility. And to cease, Father, from all of our petty little ways that so easily creep into our lives when self raises up its ugly head and we don't feel like being obedient and we don't feel like being loving to others, may we cease from that. May we remember that we represent you. We are your ambassadors to this world. So may we truly show love for the brethren and even love for the world, and even love for our enemies. Lord, this would not be possible without your presence within us. And so may we continue to abide in the vine. And we pray all these things, Jesus, so that you again would be glorified in our lives. Amen.